So as we're finishing up talking about the church, we've talked about the church local, the church universal. We've talked about the way that God ordained for the church to be governed. Um, and tonight we're going to begin talking about the two ordinances of the church. Um, the word ordinance, it's defined by, the, by Webster's Dictionary, is an authoritative decree or direction. Um, if you've ever heard the word ordained, uh, that actually comes from the, the idea of the ordinance. And typically in the church, the only people that can distribute the ordinances of the church are people who are ordained. Um, and so that's, that's where that, that tie-in comes. And the church is specifically commanded by God to baptize and to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so for the next, I think, probably two weeks, we'll be digging deeply into that, and we're going to start with baptism tonight. And so the first of those baptisms is... Uh, the first of baptism. The first of the two ordinances is baptism. Uh, I have titled this little section in my notes um, the two pictures, because these are pictures that God has created uh, for us to see and act out what is happening inside. And so we'll see that uh, and what that means. And so the first one that we're going to look at is baptism. The word, Greek word for baptism is baptizdo. And so it's actually a transliterated word in English. Uh, the word is a very easy to understand word. It simply means to dip or to put under. Um, literally, it means to, to put something in water or put under water. It's, it's the idea, it's the same word is used for baptism, is used for any time when something goes underwater or is put in the water, uh, baptizo is used. It, when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, actually it may have been an earlier English translation, like the Geneva Bible, but regardless, when an English translation of the Bible was being made, they didn't want to translate it as immerse because that particular church didn't immerse. They sprinkled. And so they directly transliterated baptizo into baptize uh, on purpose for that, that reason. Uh, so the word is very simple to understand. It just means to put under water. We first see baptism in the, in the Bible when Jesus came from Galilee in Matthew chapter 3 to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we know that Jesus was put under the water because the text says when he went up from the water. So when he was brought out of the water. So we know that Jesus was baptized like a good Baptist and put completely underneath the water. Some have made fun of me in some of the baptisms because if the person doesn't go completely under, I have a tendency to... Make sure that they get completely immersed, because I know the word means to dunk. So I want to make sure that I get it right. Um, so here we see this. Now, it seems like when John came baptizing, that this wasn't, in the first century, a new concept. In fact, <clears throat> Susie and I and, and Jeff and Judy <clears throat> excuse me, were able to uh, go to Mary Magdalene's town, Magnola, and several of the homes in that town had pools built onto the home. They weren't hot tubs. They were places for 
uh, ceremonial bathing. That is still being done in, the, in a Muslim culture today before they pray. They have a very stylized way that they have to wash. In fact, in Muslim culture, uh, one of the ways to get brownie points to make sure that you get into heaven is to leave money to make a well. And that well has to have water that's continually flowing because it has to be living water. And so they'll always be, you'll, they call them chejmes, and you'll find them out in the middle of the desert where there's, there's a pop sticking up out of the ground and there'll be a little pool and uh, it's, water is running from that pipe like an artisanal well and it's just pouring into that pool and it's not uncommon at all to be in, in where we lived in Turkey was the high uh, plateau area and there'll be greenery all around it because it's getting wet and it's just a little little pool there. I also learned accidentally that those little pools uh, attract leeches uh, because we had stopped at, at, a, uh, at Cheshme and filled all our water bottles with them because the water's coming from deep underground, so it's, they were really clean. And I, we had eaten while we were sitting around there because it was a nice, pretty green spot with trees. And uh, I went and washed my hands in the, the pool after I had eaten. And then as I was walking away, I kind of glanced out of my hand, and I had like 30 little leeches all dangling off my hand. I'm like, ah! And <laughs> so that's just that's for free. Um, nothing applying here except that in Muslim culture, which seems to carry over, they have a very stylized way that before they approach God, they bathe. They literally start with their feet, and they wash their feet, and then... Uh, they wash their hands, and then they wash the top of their head, and it's a very stylized way that they do that. That probably came from that same culture that said, when we approach God, there has to be a ceremonial bath. And so what John is saying when he goes out in the wilderness, is baptizing in the Jordan, is that you are wicked, you need to be clean. It was clear that John's point wasn't about getting wet, but about repenting. We know that it was clear because he said it over and over and over again. But Jesus came who didn't need to repent. And Jesus came and was baptized. And here in the very first baptism, we have the entire Trinity showing up. Now, I, uh, I, whenever I'm teaching, in fact, in fact, let me just tell the whole story. The first church that I was the senior pastor of was Ransdell Chapel Baptist Church. And I decided that I was going to, to teach uh, on this very same subject, and so I, it was more of a, a smaller group, and it met in my house, and I, I, I started out trying to be, you know, kind of cute, and, and use the argument from the Jehovah's Witness that the Trinity is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. That word is not anywhere in the Bible, and that's, that is a word that, that man has come up with to try to explain how God is, and that it's nowhere in the Bible, and kind of went through this whole spiel, and I glanced over and saw somebody in the crowd shaking their head. And I'm like, no, wow, I really expected everybody to go, no, shut up, that's not right. The Trinity is in the Bible. The Word is not in the Bible, but we see the Trinity throughout the Bible, and here is one of the places where we see it. We have God the Father who shows up and says, this is my beloved Son, to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and then while that is happening, you have the Holy Spirit that descends. So we see all three persons of the Trinity in one spot at one time being represented. And isn't it neat that when Jesus tells his disciples to baptize in Matthew chapter 28, and we're commanded as a church to go into the world and baptize, that we're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That baptism has a unique Trinitarian feel to it. And from its very beginning, the Trinity is involved. 
Now, why would that be? We know that baptism is a picture. It's almost like a play of what happens when we get saved. We're buried in that water because we die to ourselves, and then we're raised up from that water to walk in newness of life. We'll go into great detail on that in a few minutes. So the, the entirety of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. The Bible tells us that the Father willed for you to be saved. It was the Father's decision of who He would save. So the Father willed your salvation. The Son made it possible by dying on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is the one who drew you and then conformed you, justified you, and then sealed you to the day of redemption. And so in the act of salvation, the entirety of the Trinity is intimately involved in the fact that you became a believer. And so isn't it neat that when we do a baptism, we do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you think about, and we've talked about before, that that term in the name of isn't some sort of incantation. That when we pray, we don't pray in the name of Jesus and think that if we stick in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayer, then God has to do it. Because in the book of John, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That is not Christianity. That's witchcraft. Witchcraft says you've got to have a certain incantation to get the spirits to do what you want them to do. The reason why Jesus tells us to pray in the name of Jesus is because we're doing something, we're praying for something that would be the same thing if Jesus were here. I today was looking for some legal documents and found um, a uh, power of attorney and a, uh, a, a couple of power of attorneys, and I'm forgetting the names. I had the legal names right on the top of my head. A durable power of attorney that, that was written for my dad when Ann and I went to Turkey. And it said that he could, could do any and all actions that were required in my name. That didn't mean that he would go and sell my Jeep (coughs) and say, in the name of Tom, it means that he was only allowed to do things that would be things that I would do if I was here. He could pay my bills. He could do, he was supposed to be doing it in my name, representing me. And so when we pray for something in the name of Jesus, we're saying, God, I'm praying that this man will come to Christ. And God, I'm praying that you will convert this person who right now is bound for a devil's hell. God, I'm praying that you would convict him and draw him and cause the gospel seed to grow in his heart in the name of Jesus. Because I know that the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what I'm praying for is exactly what Jesus would do if he was here. If we feed someone in Jesus' name, that means we're doing what Jesus would do. We should be not asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? We should be studying the book and finding out what Jesus did do and then replicating that as we go. And as we go, we look at what is it that Jesus did and we live that out. And we're, the whole point of the Christian walk is that day by day by day by day by day by day, I'm getting a little bit more like Jesus than I was yesterday and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more so that I can, the things that I do reflect what he would do more and more and more. And so when we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, what that is saying is, is that 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has participated in this person being here. Now, in saying that, one of the th- things that, especially when, when kids come, I've got a, a, a young man that, that um, talked to his mother today, uh, and she was telling me that uh, just a few days ago they were doing something, and she looked over, and he was crying. And she's like, what's the matter, son? And, and he said, I, I, I can't talk to you about it. And she said, I'm your mother. You better be able to talk to me about it. And all kinds of crazy things are going through her mind of what's going on. And she presses him, and he said, I'm just afraid that if Jesus were to come back today, that, he, that I wouldn't get to go because I have never been baptized. And so she's like, so he needs to get baptized. And I, I said, well, we're gonna, I need to sit down and let's sit down and talk with him because I, wa- I always with kids want to say over and over and over again, if you go into that water as a lost person, you leave the baptistry as a wet lost person, that's all it does. Baptism doesn't save anybody. But it's been my experience that believers, when they're exposed to God's Word, long to be baptized. The best example of that in my entire life has been my lovely wife. Uh, She was saved through a program called Young Life. It's how she was exposed to the gospel. And Young Life uh, is interdenominational. It's a great ministry. I I was on the board for a period of time of Young Life. And it, it really seeks to reach... Uh, teenagers and, and middle school kids with the gospel, uh, but just to make sure that it doesn't offend anybody, they don't teach anything about baptism. And so she was, did not grow up in a Christian home. Her uh, mother and father uh, were not, didn't go to church, um, and so she, she was completely and totally discipled through this program, and so she had never, uh, never even been really thought that much about baptism, other than the fact that it was something that I heard that church, some churches do. Um, and once she started hearing about what baptism is, she want, wanted to obey God, Christ by following the Lord in believer's baptism. It was something that she wanted to do. It was something that bothered her that she hadn't done. And so um, as a you know, 21-year-old young lady who had been saved for, for six or seven years, uh, Shades Mountain Baptist Church in Birmingham, she, she was baptized. Uh, so it, it is something that is obedience because we're commanded here to do it, but it's also something that, that believers long to do. Now, in Acts chapter 8, we have an interesting story. I, I, I do love this story. One of the reasons I love this story is because Philip is, is in Samaria. He's preaching, and hundreds of people are getting saved. I mean, the gospel's pouring out. And those kind of times are super exciting. I, I think I've shared with you guys about the time I was in Nepal, and it seemed like every village we went into, the, the little village house would be completely packed, overflowing, people sitting in the windows. And every time we had an invitation, half the village would get up and get saved. It was just an amazing time. And so Philip is going through that, and, and people are getting saved. And the Bible tells us that... Um, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then the writer here tells us this is a desert place. Philip must have thought that God had lost his mind. So, God, you're using me here. All these people are getting saved. Why in the world do you want me to go where there ain't nobody? Which tells me that God is super concerned about individuals. I, 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 that That's just an awesome little aspect of this. And so he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, 
who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I except someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? That is a beautiful, beautiful picture of... So here the, the eunuch is exposed to the gospel... I don't know why it cut out one of the most important verses in there. Um, when he asked, what prevents me from being baptized? Let's see. He said, what is preventing me from being baptized? And he commanded, it skips 37. Well, in verse 37, it says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is verse 37. I'll have to look into that. That must be a textual variant. Um, the point is, is that this, this guy, as he's being exposed to the gospel, realizes the significance of, of baptism. And the moment he sees water, he wants to be baptized. And, they came, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. So the reason why we see this is we see that in the early church, early on, this is soon after Pentecost, already the practice was in place that once a person believed and accepted Christ, they were baptized. And so we see the, the principle being laid out in the, in the New Testament narrative in the book of Acts that baptism is for believers. That once a person believes, they're saved, and then they're baptized. Now, the question invariably comes up, is then baptism required for salvation? Is it one of the things that you have to do? Um, I think that we have examples in the Bible, and the one that I, I usually point to when someone asks me that is the thief on the cross. Jesus doesn't say to him, well, if you can get down from the cross and be baptized, then today you will join me in paradise. He had no opportunity to be baptized. And yet he believed, and his belief was enough. It doesn't undermine the importance of baptism that it's not required for salvation. All that is required for salvation is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's, baptism is super important, but it isn't something that has to happen before a person can, be, uh, can, make, can make it to heaven, before they can be a believer. The mode of, of 
baptism, according to our bylaws in this church, if you join this church, if you have not been baptized by immersion, you cannot join the church. That's what the bylaws state. As a Baptist church, that's what we have said. Uh, there are people in this room, I know, that come from other traditions where there's sprinkling and, and uh, um, uh, emulation where you take a bucket of water essentially and dump it on them. It's a holy bucket, but it's a bucket nonetheless, and you dump water. So there's, there's different modes of baptism, um, and we believe as Baptists, from the name, that a person is only baptized as a believer and, and baptized by full immersion. In my life, I've had one exception. I've always baptized someone by immersion, as we said, even as a joke. I, I, I kind of make sure that they get all the way under, maybe hold them under a little bit to make sure they're fully down there. Um, I did have a gentleman that had terminal cancer, um, and he, I led him to the Lord in a hospital, and there was no way that he was ever going to be baptized by immersion. And um, his wife really wanted, uh, for her conscience, wanted him to be baptized, and so I baptized him by sprinkling. Um, maybe that was wrong. I felt like in that circumstance <clears throat> that Paul's, <coughs> Paul's directive that our only rule in the church is love uh, was that the most loving thing that I could do in that particular situation because he was never going to leave the hospital uh, and, and baptism wasn't required for him to get to heaven. Just to make him feel better and her feel better, I, I, I got some water and sprinkled it on his head and, and, uh, and said the same thing that I say when I put somebody under the water. I, um, on profession of your faith, and Jesus is your Savior and Lord, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, which felt really weird since I was doing this number, and raised up in the likeness of his glorious resurrection. Um, now, that te- that what I say in the pulpit may be different from what you've heard before. I take that completely from Romans chapter 6, and that's where I want to close. In Romans chapter 6, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had just finished talking about, in Romans chapter 5, about how uh, the book of Romans completely is about the idea of how can we attain the righteousness of God. And he takes the first three chapters and says, man left to himself will never attain it. And then he addresses whether or not the law can bring you righteousness through God. And then Romans chapter 5, he says, no, that the law is not available to do that. And what the law does is exposes our sin. And he says in the last verse of Romans chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The natural question that someone would say is, well, if that's the case, if where sin abounds, grace abounds, then I just need to let the grace flow, baby. I can do whatever I want to do. And so Paul answers that question. What do we say then? Do we continue sinning that grace will abound? No, God forbid. How can we who have died this sin continue any longer therein? Don't you know, he says, that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, and that word, I don't think he's referring to baptism as water baptism that we're talking about. He's talking about when a person gets saved and is immersed in Jesus Christ, for as we've been baptized in Jesus Christ, into Jesus Christ, we are baptized into his death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
even so you also should walk in newness of life. Do you get what that's saying? That the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that changes you so that you can walk in a new what life. So there are times when I've had believers that came to me and say, I just can't do it. And I say, shut up, that's blasphemy. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead can cause you to live a new life. And so, does that mean that we're without sin? No, he addresses that question in Romans 7. But that shows us that baptism is a beautiful, beautiful picture of being buried with him by baptism. And so that's a picture of me dying, being buried, I'm done. My old life is done. In fact, baptism is one of the best evangelism tools. That's why every time we do a baptism, we get Donna to bring the kids in. Because every time when they leave and go to the back, some little kid will go, I want to be baptized. And she'll say, why do you want to be baptized? And they'll say, well, because um, I, want, I want to go to heaven. Like, because I saw him get baptized, and I want to get baptized. And she, that gives her a chance to say, no, baptism doesn't save you, but look at what the picture is, that you're buried. So you're dying to your old self, which means that Jesus gets to be the boss of your life for everything. And, that's, and she will say, that's hard for me as an adult. Sometimes I don't want Jesus telling me what to do. Sometimes I want to be mad at the people who've done me wrong, and Jesus says to forgive those who do you wrong. Pray for them who spitefully use you. I don't want to do that. But we die to what we want to do and we do instead what we're told to do. And God doesn't leave us alone to do that. We walk by the power of the resurrection and newness of life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Here he's taking the analogy of death to its nth degree. Dead people don't sin anymore. I mean, I've, I, I, I think I've shared with you guys that, that when I was in uh, North Carolina, um, I found out that there was kind of this weird cobble of preachers going on where they were, if somebody came to the funeral home and didn't have a church family, that the funeral home director had a list and he'd work down the list and give this one to this guy and they would charge $200 to do a, a funeral and it was just some easy, fast money. Um, and so I, it made me mad because y'all have met me that that was going on. And so I went to the funeral home directors and say, have them call me, I'll do it for free which didn't make me the most popular guy at the pastoral association, I can assure you. Um, but what that meant was that I did a, quite a few funerals of people that had never been to church before, and I did, I did one funeral that when I walked in, and what was bad is I, I always try to double dip with my life, and I'll drag my kids along to stuff, and I had Emily with me, and she was probably four or five, at, oh, she had been older than that, or maybe seven, and we walk in, and they're playing Leonard Skinner as I walk in. And so here's the casket sitting there, and uh, I'm seeing that everybody in the room's wearing leather, and draped over the casket is a flag, but it ain't the American flag. So he's got a rebel flag over the casket, and, and I'm like, what in the world? And as people would come by that g casket, they would drop in the little singles of whiskey, and they would drop in um, little uh, 
cigarettes with, I'm assuming, was, was marijuana. And they, would, they were putting stuff in the casket. And, and I kind of had to fight the urge to fight because dead men don't sin. He don't want that jack you're putting in there. He ain't going to do nothing with it. If in 100 years from now we dig, dig that casket up, that bottle of jack's going to be unopened. It's kind of like the, uh, if you've ever heard the story about the, the, uh, the man who left in his will that uh, all of his money was to be buried with him. So his wife wrote a check for the amount and put it in the casket and said, that'll be just fine. <laughs> Dead men don't do nothing. They don't sin. And what Paul is saying here is that if we are in Christ and baptized, if we are immersed, baptized in Christ, he died and we died with him. That old self died and dead men don't sin anymore. And so we die to our own will. We die to our own desires. We die to our own ways. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So just as the power that brought Jesus up out of that grave is the power that empowers you to live a life for Christ that is symbolized. Because we don't leave them underwater. Right? We better not. I, um, when we lived in Coleman County, and I don't know how much you guys know about Coleman County, but Coleman County is a pretty lily-white place. Um, and there, were, there was an area of Coleman County that, that was called Colony, and that's where the uh, African-American community was. And um, there was a guy that had uh, married an African-American guy who had married a white woman, and he just wasn't real liked in the community because they had gotten together. And, um, but they didn't, nobody messed with him much because he was a humongous human being. He was probably close to seven foot, probably weighed about 350. He was just a huge guy. In fact, he worked at Walmart Distribution in Coleman County, and his job was his job title was non-conv, which meant that if something was so big and heavy that it couldn't be conveyed on the tracking system that they had, he would go pick it up and carry it wherever it needed to be. That was his job. He was a hu- human forklift, and he was this big, huge guy, and... Um, Somebody that went to the church worked with him, and they had talked to him at work, and he had expressed an interest to the gospel. And so I went over to his house, and sure enough, the first time I ever went in the guy's house, he got saved. Well, I mean, as he was, I'm ex- telling him about how Jesus died for him to make a way. Tears were rolling down this big, huge guy's face, and he got down on his knees and barely fit in between the couch and the coffee table. He was so big and got saved. And he said, can I get baptized? And I said, absolutely. And... Um, and then I thought, I've never baptized anybody that big. So I left there and was like, I'm scared to death because what if I drown him? And he'd already told me that he couldn't swim and was scared of water. And so I literally went door to door in the community talking to other preachers about uh, how do you baptize somebody who's huge? Because, you know, if you're, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, come on, let's go, kind of thing. And then if you get him down, how do you get him up? I mean, some of you have seen, even in, in our baptistry, there have been times when I kind of have to shift behind the person and push. Well, if he's 350, I ain't pushing him. So 
I went around and nobody knew. Nobody knew what was in. So I go into this one little church and they happened to have a missionary there who'd been a missionary to Africa. And he said, well, don't do this. He said, I was in a village one time and we were using a cattle tank. You know what I'm talking about? The silver. Where I baptized Chris Stewart in where I had to push him and almost get on top of him to get him under the water. Uh, he was using a cattle tank to baptize this guy in, and he goes down under the water, and the guy started flailing, and he ended up getting his hands out from around him where he couldn't pick him up. And he said, I'm standing there looking at the cattle tank going, this is really going to hurt evangelism because there's nothing you can do. The guy's drowning. And thankfully, some of the deacons in the church were smart enough to run up and push the cattle tank over and just dump the guy out. And I said, well, that's not helpful. I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> so, where was I going with that? Oh, we bring them out of the water. We got to get them out of the water. And, and that's the picture of walking in newness of life. So you also can... <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. Uh, what I learned that you have to do, I actually made some calls further away than Coleman and found out that you have to overfill the baptistry a little bit. You get a stool like what we have in here. We didn't have that, so we actually put a stool in the water so he could sit down. And then he just leaned back, and I had two other deacons in the water with me just in case. And then, we, then all he had to do was sit back up. So we sat him on a stool. Is everybody good? I got him up. So we got about as far as I figured we would. So next week we're going to pick up the Lord's Supper. We're going to start talking about that. Um, this concludes the lesson. Are there any questions?